So did you know that you are a billionaire? That's right. Right now, you have about seven billion, billion, billion in your account. Some serious cash, right? And over the next 12 months, you're going to replace 98% of that seven billion, billion, billion. Some good numbers, right? Now, unfortunately, I'm not talking about cash, and I'm not talking about Bitcoin. I'm not even talking about Monopoly money. No, I'm talking about atoms. Yeah. Right now, you have 7 billion, billion, billion atoms in your body. And over the next 12 months, you will replace 98% of those 7 billion, billion, billion atoms. That's a lot of atoms. Interestingly, atoms are mostly empty space. It's actually been estimated that if you took all of the empty space out of the atoms in human beings, that we could get the entire human race inside something the size of one sugar cube. Just one. Therefore, the earth would take one lump, not two. You knew I'd do it. But why do atoms matter? Well, they matter because that's what they are. A project from Northwestern University details it in this way. Matter is anything that can be touched physically. Everything in the universe except energy is made of matter, and so everything in the universe is made of atoms. So atoms matter a lot. I could do it all day. You know that. Everything is made up of atoms. Now, the information and illustration that I'm about to share is some mathematical data that Dow found. All right? So putting my name in the same sentence as the word math, already kind of a scary, dangerous thing, but just go with me. Secondly, I got all of this mathematical data from the World Wide Interweb. And so, of course, we know if it's on the Internet, it's got to be true, naturally. So, by all means, everything I'm about to say is hard scientific fact that should be etched on a brick and put at the Smithsonian Science Education Center, for sure. Hopefully, you are catching all of my sarcasm. But a little bit of information. A pint of blood has 2.4 trillion red blood cells, 2.4 trillion. It's been estimated that inside one red blood cell, there's about 120 quadrillion atoms. That's a lot of atoms. Now, imagine your bank calls and says, hey, we want to transfer $16 from your account into the account of one of our new account holders to kind of help them out with some fees that they have. I mean, that probably wouldn't sit right with us, you know. It might at least sound a little bit strange, a little bit odd. But what if your doctor were to call you and say, listen, I I would like to transfer 16 ounces of your blood for a patient of mine at the children's hospital. All right, you would lose 2.4 trillion red blood cells, quadrillions of atoms. But in a sense, 
you kind of wouldn't know it. Because all of those that you would lose, 98% of them you would replenish over the next 12 months. In other words, there's a lot of atoms. And we may not lose and miss the atoms that are gone. But here's the thing. There is a possibility that you are stingy with atoms. It's possible. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of atoms that are in your red blood cells. I'm talking about spiritual atoms. What are spiritual atoms? What does that mean? Well, let's see if we can find out. One day, Jesus was teaching a crowd of people. And he told him a story about a son that went to his father and demanded his inheritance money early. He got the money and he went off and moved as far away from home as he possibly could. And then he started spending that money. Boy, he was living it up, a rich, extravagant, wild, sinful life. But he was so sinful that he became foolish and ignorant. And in a short amount of time, he blew through all of his money, money that should have lasted him a lifetime. He wasted it all. So he realized there was only one thing he could do. He had to limp back home. He had to make his way back home. Maybe his father would give him a job out on the farm so he could at least work a little bit to make a little bit of money so that he could buy some food. Maybe his dad would do that. But his father refused to do that. See, his father thought he was never going to see his son again. He thought first he would never come back. And if he did, he would only come back as a body. So when this father saw that his son was approaching home, he ran to welcome him. Couldn't get there fast enough. He could not contain his joy. He was overwhelmed that his son had come home. His father had another son, an older son. The older son had been out working in the field, and when he came back from the field that day, he found out there was this big, huge, gigantic party, and then he found out the big, huge party was for his wild, ignorant, arrogant, immoral little brother. Well, needless to say, he did not welcome him home. No, his anger could not be contained. He wanted to have nothing to do with this. So what did he do? Well, he sat out on the front porch, and he pouted. He was angry. He wasn't coming in. As Jesus tells the story, the the father found out that his older son was out on the porch, left the party, went outside, and pleaded with him to come back in. Pleaded with him to to come and welcome his brother. Pleaded with him to come and, and to celebrate what God was doing in the family. But the son rejected him. He was rude. He was snarky. He dishonored his dad all the more. So how did his dad respond to his rudeness? Jesus continues the story, verse 31. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. The older son, he's embarrassing the whole family sitting out on the porch. He's dishonoring his father by rejecting his gracious invitation to come back into the party. He's being a rude, selfish, moral, self-righteous jerk. 
That's, that's how he's acting. And how does the father respond? Does the father say, boy, you better get in that house. You better get in there because if you don't, I'm going to rewrite the will and leave everything to Cousin Eddie. So you better get it going. No, that's not what the father says. He doesn't criticize him. He doesn't bully him. He doesn't lecture him. He just tells him the truth. And he tells him the truth in love. He says, look, son, everything I have is still yours. It's, it's all yours. All the money, all the land, it's, it's yours. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not leaving you. I'm still here. I'm still your father. So the father is having to reassure his older son that he's not going to lose his stuff. That's sad. And that last part, son doesn't care about that. He, he didn't want a relationship with his dad. He didn't care that his, his dad's still there. If he wanted a relationship with his dad, he wouldn't be on the porch. If he wanted to honor and love his dad, he, he wouldn't be dishonoring him by rejecting his invitation. He wouldn't be ignoring his family. He wouldn't be causing huge gossip inside the house by sitting out on the porch and pouting. Nah, he didn't want a relationship with his dad. The only thing he's thinking is this. If my dad gets all lovey-dovey mushy over my little brother coming home, he might start giving away some of my stuff to him. That's all he's thinking about. He refused to love and honor his wayward brother. He refused to love and honor his faithful father. And what does that mean when, when you refuse to love? 1 John 4, 8 says this, the one who does not love does not know God. Kind of clear. The one who does not love does not know God. Now, notice that doesn't mean that you have to do everything for everybody to prove your love. That, that's not it. It's just that he showed no love for his father. All he had to do was say, yes, sir, and, and go inside and enjoy the party. All he had to do was go hug his brother, but he wouldn't. There was no love. But what if the older brother is thinking, what if this is a flash in the pan? I mean, what if it's not for real? What if, what if this is just a, a phony thing? Well, based on the culture, that, that seems unlikely. I mean, the, the kind of emotional and maybe physical rejection that his little brother would have to face was kind of a big deal. His father might reject him and lock him out of the house. His friends might do the exact same thing. The people in the community, they might actually try to stone him. So culturally speaking, it seems unlikely that the little brother was trying to make a play to come back home and, and squeeze into things and squeeze a little more money out of the old man. Now that, that seems unlikely. But what if it was? What if it was a flash in the pan? What, what if the little brother was all phony? Jeff Thomas says this, if God gives his grace to a wretched, wicked sinner who repents, it doesn't mean that there is an atom less for you. If you have a 120 quadrillion atoms in one red blood cell, how many atoms do you think God has the resources for? 
Remember what the Father said? Everything, everything I have is yours. Everything. The older brother will lose nothing with his little brother coming home. Nothing. I mean, that's simple math, right? He gets everything. He loses nothing. And yet still, what is he doing? Front porch. Pouting. He's pouting because his daddy didn't give him and his friends a goat for their Super Bowl party. I mean, he's pouting over, over a goat. Samuel Trevor Francis was a, a merchant in England in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He wrote a hymn, just a fantastic hymn, and Stacey and Emily just got through playing a portion of that in their arrangement. This is the first verse of the hymn. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. You know what vast and unmeasured and and boundless and free means when it comes to the love of God? It means that there's plenty of room in heaven for lost people who have never been to church. That's what vast and unmeasured and and boundless and free means. And vast and unmeasured and and boundless and free, the, the love of God, the love of Jesus, it means that there's plenty of room in heaven for lost people who are in church every Sunday. See, there's not an atom less of grace from God just because someone gets saved. I don't understand this math. I just know it's how the Bible speaks to us. In Jesus, everything that God has can be ours. That's astounding. But how is that even possible? That's what Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 24. And he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Jesus Christ He was perfect and he was innocent. No one else has ever lived and no one else will ever live who will be perfect and innocent. Only Jesus. That means only Jesus was qualified to deal with sin. Only Jesus was qualified to pay for your sin. It might be a very noble thing for someone to say, hey, you know what, I I know you got some fees down there at the bank. I'll, I'll go take care of those fees for you. But then when that person goes to the bank and they write a check and it bounces or they use their debit card or their credit card and it's declined, that person just disqualified themselves from being able to help you. They didn't have the funds to help. And it might be noble for somebody to say, hey, I heard you got a a 30-day jail sentence. I'll go serve that for you. That sounds noble. But then when they get to the jail, it's discovered that they have an outstanding warrant And then they cannot help you. In other words, both of you are going to end up in jail, you know, that night. They would be disqualified. It was absolutely and completely and totally and eternally impossible for Jesus to ever be disqualified. 
He was and he is perfect. Therefore, he is the only one who can substitute himself for the penalty of our sin. No one else can save you. No one else can rescue you. No one else can redeem you. Only Jesus. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Why? Notice what it says there. So that we might die to sin. And then that second part. So that we might live. Jesus did not take our sin in his own body so that we might complain, so that we might criticize, so that we might be afraid, so that we might worry. He didn't do it so that we might be greedy. He didn't do it so that we might sit on the front porch and pout. No, Jesus bore our sins in his own body so that we would die to sin and that we might live to righteousness. In other words, Jesus bore our sins in his own body so that we would bear in our own body a deep desire to be in a real, lasting relationship with God. And not just to be in that relationship, but to enjoy the greatness of being in a relationship with the one true living God. That right relationship can only come from Jesus, nowhere else. I love what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Just powerful stuff, beginning in Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its names. Verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Comprehend what? Verse 18 and 19. Comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Just marinate on that for a second. All of the fullness of the creator of the universe. (laughs) That we might be filled up with all the fullness of God. That's what happens through Jesus Christ. It can only happen through Jesus Christ. It's why we keep making a big deal out of Jesus Christ. Jeff Thomas says this, God says to every Christian, everything I have is yours because my son, Jesus Christ, has purchased it all for you. All. Now, don't take these next comments completely out of context. Just hang with me for a moment. There are times that we need to pursue fairness and justice. There are times that we need to be wise and discerning, and we don't need to be taken advantage of. Those are all givens. But with those things said, if we're a Christian and we've been filled up 
to all the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, do we really need to stand in the bank and scream at the teller in the lobby because someone accidentally got $16 from our account? If we have all the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, do we really need to scream and yell and make mean faces and throw hot dog wrappers at the fans of our rival team? I mean, do we really? If we have all the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, do we really need to stand in the hallway and scream at the florist on our wedding day because we ordered blush roses and they brought bashful roses instead? I mean, do, do we really need to do that? If we've been filled with all the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, do we need to sit on the front porch and pout because we didn't get a goat for our friends, for our Super Bowl party, and our little brother got a huge barbecue? Do we need to do that? We really don't. Here's verse 2 of Samuel, Trevor Francis's hymn. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love. Leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. I want you to take whatever stress, whatever thing is on your schedule this week, whatever health issue, whatever hurt, anger, frustration, bitterness, whatever it is that you have that you're struggling with. I want you to take that and I want you to look at those last three lines, leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. I want you to think of that thing and, and then I want you to hear this reality. If you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, by the presence and the power and the pressing of the Holy Spirit, the only gear of your life is onward and homeward. There is no other gear. No one can throw you out of that gear. No one can stop that journey. That's what it means to have the fullness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The power and the presence and the pressing of the Holy Spirit keeps us onward, keeps us homeward, and no one can change that. That's good news. If you're a Christian, there's absolutely no value for you or to you to pout. <laughs> no value. There's no value for you to, to pout about anything. Why? About 600 years before Jesus was born, there was a prophet named Habakkuk. And his country experienced a lot of war, a lot of conflict, a lot of hardship. And this is what he wrote. Habakkuk 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines... Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, he continues, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult 
in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. This scene is not impossible to imagine, right? It's dinner time. Mom turns to her son. Hey, Joseph, it's time for us to make dinner. How about go get some, some figs? Get some figs. Mom, we, we don't have any figs. Okay, well, then go to the vines and, and get us some grapes. Mom, we don't have any grapes. All right, we'll, we'll go out to the tree and, and get us some olives. Mom, there's no olives. All right, we'll, we'll go out to the fields and get some wheat and we'll just, we'll have bread tonight. Mom, there's, there's no wheat. All right, we'll, we'll go out to the barn, get, get one of our lambs, and we'll, we'll just have lamb stew for dinner. Mom, there's no lambs. Mom, the, the soldiers, they, they came and they, they destroyed everything and they took everything. We, we have nothing. Everything is gone. Now, that sounds a little bit like a contradiction to what we just said, right? Wait a minute, I thought you just said that we can have everything that God has in Christ. Doesn't sound like Habakkuk and them got everything. So what's he saying? Look at the last part of what he says again. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. What he's saying is this, if I have salvation in God, I have everything I need. Because if I need food and I don't get food, that's no fun. But if I need food and I don't get food, that's okay because I will not take food with me when I die. But my soul is forever. So my soul needs to be right. So if my soul is right with God and I have the salvation of God, then I will have everything I need. See, kind of what he's saying is this. You know, I may miss out on some material things in this life, but I have this promise. Jesus bore my sin in his own body. And I've been redeemed, and how I love to proclaim it. I've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, and nothing can take my redemption away. No one can stop me from going onward and homeward. If I'm hungry, I'm still onward. If I'm homeless, I'm still onward. If I am dying, I'm still onward. Nothing can change. See, that's how a prophet can write, oh, it's all falling apart, but oh my goodness, I've been redeemed. If you're a Christian, all the fullness of God in Jesus Christ is yours. And if you have all the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, then you have what your heart and your soul need and long for the most. Everything. It's with him. Now, does having all the fullness of God in Jesus Christ mean you're never going to pout? No. <laughs> We're going to pout, you know. We're going to have our moments. We're going to have our days. But here's what I hope. What I hope 
is that if we can get these truths from God into our mind and our heart, that in the moment that we're sitting on the front porch pouting, that we would be able to say, self, self, you have the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. Stop pouting. Really, self, stop pouting. Go inside, get some barbecue, have fun. See, that's what the truth of God does. If we don't have the truth of God in our heart and our mind, if we're not hiding God's word in our heart, then we will freak out at the bank. And we'll freak out at the rivalry game. And we'll freak out in the hospital. And we'll freak out in the argument with our spouse or the argument with our kids. But see, the glory of the truth of God is that it keeps calling us back and calling us back and reminding us, oh, wait a minute, I'm a child of God. I have the fullness of God. I've been redeemed. And when we consider that we've been redeemed, what we usually do is exactly what the Father did. Look at verse 32. This is what he says to his son. Son, but we had to celebrate and rejoice For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Love this response. Son, son, I had to rejoice. I had to rejoice because your brother's not lost. He's not dead. I have to rejoice because that's that's who I am. I rejoice when lost people are found. I, I rejoice when dead people come to life. I have to rejoice. I'm compelled to rejoice. I can't stop myself. It's who I am. I remember Jesus is talking to a crowd of people, and in that crowd are a lot of people who had been longtime members of their churches. And it's as if Jesus is is graciously wanting them to know, hey, God is not stingy with joy. He's not stingy with joy. God hurts. He aches for those who are lost and and reject him. But he rejoices with great joy. He can't do anything different when the lost are found and when the dead come to life. It's who he is. It's his character. So what about us? I mean, we're not perfect. We never will be. But would anybody even have the notion of being able to say that part of our character is that we're just the kind of people that that we're just joyful? It's just kind of who we are. We we kind of have joy. I love how the father does not let his older son get out of the family. Look what he says there. He says, this brother of yours... Remember earlier when he was talking to his dad, he said, yeah, this son of yours, he wouldn't even claim him. I love how the dad flips that around. Well, this brother of yours, let me bring you back into the family, buddy. This, this brother of yours, he was dead, but now he's starting to live. Did you love the tenderness from the father? Son, son, your, your brother, he was, he was in sin, dead in his sin, off in some far land. And by grace, God has saved him. And now, he is truly alive. Son, we have to celebrate. We, 
We have to rejoice. I also love how Jesus leaves this as a cliffhanger. He, he doesn't give us the end of the story, does he? He just, he just kind of stops. So does the older brother listen to his dad? Does he come in off the porch? Does he, does he go in and give his little brother a bear hug and have some barbecue and have fun? We don't know. Does the little brother stay true and faithful? Or, or was he a phony? Was he really just trying to squeeze some extra money? We don't know. And based on the audience, we have every reason to believe that Jesus left this as a cliffhanger on purpose. Because what he's doing is in grace and mercy, he is tenderly saying to me and to you, so what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? John MacArthur offers some thought-provoking possible endings to the story. This is the first one, he says. Maybe the story ends like this. The son, seeing his father's love, compassion, and grace, came to his senses about his wicked heart, was humbled, repented, and reconciled. That'd be good. That's a pretty good ending. Second one that he proposes is something similar. And the older son fell on his knees before his father, saying, I repent for my loveless cold service, my pride and selfishness. That's a pretty good one, too. He offers one more. And the older son, being outraged at his father, picked up a piece of wood and beat him to death in front of everyone. There's a twist, right? Didn't see that coming as the end of the story. MacArthur goes on. That's the ending the Pharisees wrote. That's the cross. And that's what they did to Jesus just a few months after he told the story. In other words, they didn't listen. They didn't listen. They heard Jesus preach sermon after sermon after sermon. They saw Jesus be gracious to people over and over again. They saw the love of Jesus poured out to sinners and saints. But as someone has said, we, we really never find any Pharisees repenting. You know, we see a little something with Nicodemus and we hope and long. But just generally speaking, there's, there's not a lot of repentant stories that we see. Why? Because they never responded well. They heard the parables. They heard the truth. They heard the stories. But they kept pushing away. So, since May, we have looked at, at Luke 15. We spent some time looking at the little brother. And we spent some time looking at the father. And we spent some time looking at the older brother. And so the only question left for us after walking in all of this truth from Jesus is this. What are you going to do with the prodigal story? What are you going to do?